It's my pleasure today to introduce our speaker. Um, so hopefully you guys have realized that we sort of grouped the lectures into chunks and this chunk happened to be about trauma. Um, and so it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Alana Smith. So Alana Smith is here at the University of Maryland. She's an assistant professor in radiology. Um, she was recommended to me as an excellent lecturer with expertise in trauma and trauma radiology. Um, and I'm very excited to have her here today. Um, she's gonna give a lecture on the top 10 radiology diagnoses that you might see in the trauma world. Um, Dr. Smith, thank you, thank you for being here. Like I said, thank you for being so accommodating with our crazy schedule, and I really look forward to this talk. Thank you so much for uh, for inviting me, and thank you so much for that kind introduction. Um, so we will be doing a whirlwind tour of trauma radiology, uh, top 10 diagnoses. I tried to put myself in your guys' shoes about what you're most likely to see in patients uh, when they're new admits and they come into the true, and also patients uh, once they've been admitted, uh, you know, different radiologic diagnoses that you may see on your uh, trauma floor patients. So um, without further ado, uh, here are our learning objectives. I'll let you guys uh, just look through these real quick. Uh, we're going to be talking uh, about a whole variety of things, but we're going to really spend some time talking about the unilateral lung whiteout. Uh, we'll describe the benefits of CT studies uh, performed using multiple phases of contrast and then recognize that uh, we'll do a brief overview of recognizing brain herniation patterns and their complications. Uh, this is going to be a Poll Everywhere talk, so um, I have a QR code and also a website. Uh, you can choose your favorite way of accessing Poll Everywhere. So I'll give you guys a couple minutes to, or a couple, uh, you know, a few moments to uh, get logged into Poll Everywhere, and then we'll get started. If you guys can just put a thumbs up in your uh, in your box or just give a, a manual thumbs up, uh, we will uh, give you guys a few few moments to get going here. All right, you guys uh, mostly ready to go? Anyone need more time so to speak now? All right. And we're going to keep this pretty informal, so if you guys have questions along the way, feel free to shout them out, or uh, you can put questions in the text box, uh, chat box. We'll try and monitor that as well. So here we go. Uh, this, I just want to uh, get to know you guys a little bit better before we launch into everything and uh, get to know my audience. So what is your PGY level? Make sure... Electronics are working all properly. All right, another few moments. Anyone having any technical difficulties here? So, wow, it looks like we've got a uh, quite a variety of uh, PGY levels here in the audience. So thank you all for being here, and hopefully there'll be something here for uh, for everybody. All right, so here is our first case. This is going to be a case-based presentation. So a 65-year-old female pedestrian hit by a car. What is the best interpretation of this admission chest radiograph? All right, so let's see how you guys did. So most of you guys got this. The correct answer is pneumothorax. And we will, uh, we will go through uh, some of the findings on this study. So uh, the admission chest radiograph, as you guys mostly, uh, you know, as you know, um, is mostly going to be performed in the supine position. So if we're concerned about pneumothorax, we have to know where to look for the pneumothorax. And one of the supine imaging findings of pneumothorax is the deep focus sign. So we take a look at this chest radiograph, and you can see that there's quite an asymmetry of the uh, depth of the right costophrenic angle compared to the left. This one goes way deeper. So this is uh, already, I'm pretty suspicious that there's pneumothorax here. So some of the other typical findings that you would look for in an upright chest radiograph, you know, you see the classic pleural line. You're not necessarily always going to see that. You might notice that, yeah, maybe it looks a little bit more loose into the right lung base compared to, um, you know, areas elsewhere where you can see some good lung markings, but you won't always see that. 
So um, really, we're just looking for the difference in the, uh, the depth of that costophrenic sulcus. Um, here is another example of um, a chest radiograph. This was a, a patient who was hit by a train. And unfortunately, uh, the way the study was performed technically, it didn't really do us any favors because we had part of the left costophrenic angle excluded from the field of view. Um, but you can already get the sense that, uh, you know, probably that left costophrenic angle probably extended a little bit lower than the right. Uh, so we were pretty suspicious based on this as well. And this turned out that uh, when we got the CT, there was a confirmed pneumothorax here. Um, the other thing that uh, you guys are probably very familiar with and have, uh, you know, have seen many examples of both clinically and then, uh, you know, just reading about is, uh, is the tension pneumothorax. So this is going to be the pneumothorax that's actually causing mass effect on other structures. So we take a look, we see that this entire right lung is completely loosened. Um, it's also causing mass effect. If we take a look at the, uh, at the hemidiaphragms, the right hemidiaphragm very rarely will be ever be lower than the left hemidiaphragm. We can see that this is significantly lower compared to the left. Uh, it's flattened. And we also look at the cardiomediastinal silhouette, which is shifted over to the left. Um, the third finding that we can look for, which is a little bit more subtle, is if you look at the spacing between the ribs, uh, like uh, take a look at these ribs that are outlined by the arrow here, that the distance between those ribs is wider compared to the contralateral side of the ribs. So all this gas in the pleural space is causing expansion of, um, of the rib space. It's causing mass effect on the, you know, on the diaphragm and on the cardiomediastinal silhouette altogether. Um, a lot of times we'll see the contralateral lung has some associated atelectasis as well. And here we can see just the tiniest little bit of what was the uh, the right lung that is completely deflated in and of itself because of all the um, the mass effect in the pleural space. So, um, you know, some of the findings that you guys are going to see clinically, obviously impaired respiratory function, decreased venous return and cardiac output. Uh, these patients will be pretty hypoxic and will have hemodynamic instability. Uh, so this needs to be recognized super, uh, you know, super quickly and, uh, and managed so we can, uh, you know, these patients can improve clinically. Um, any questions about pneumothorax or tension pneumothorax? Can anything else give you a deep sulcus sign other than a pneumothorax? You know, there is um, some anatomic variation, and I have I have been fooled. Others have been fooled. Where you know we don't have comparison studies, so we can't say, oh yeah, it's looked like this for the last three or four years. And sometimes people's anatomy is just like a little bit unusual, so. You know, if you see it and we don't have a comparison study, we might suggest that there's pneumothorax. And then, you know, we could either get a repeat chest radiograph, either upright, or sometimes we can even do like a decubitus, um, a decubitus film uh, to look for gas that, you know, would accumulate anti-dependently uh, to confirm that there's pneumothorax. Or obviously we could just go to straight, like straight to CT. Um, but other than anatomic variation and pneumothorax, I can't really think of too many other things that would, uh, that would necessarily cause it. Any other questions about about this? Oh, and somebody put in here, um, oh, about hyperinflation. Um, oops, I just made this box too big. Uh, yeah, so hyperinflation can cause flattening of the hemidiaphragms. Um, so you wouldn't necessarily get a deep sulcus sign from that, but, um, you know, you can get flattening if it's just, uh, you know, maybe a patient with COPD or just an asthmatic or, you know, somebody who's just taken a really big breath, you can get flattening of the costophrenic or of the diaphragms, and that will generally be symmetric. The one exception to that would be, um, you know, maybe in a pediatric patient who has an aspirated foreign body, um, you know, you might get one side that's hyperinflated. Um, unilaterally, um, you know, but you would not get the, it would be unusual to see the deep sulcus sign. You would just see the flattening of the hemidiaphragm on the side that was affected. All right. 
We'll go to our next case. Okay, 35-year-old male, status post MVC. What is the most critical abnormality on this chest radiograph? All right, let's see how you guys did. All right, so most of you guys are all over this. Uh, so yeah, this is a pretty classic appearance of a widened mediastinum. Um, so let's talk about some of the findings that we have here. So widened mediastinum can be a little bit tricky in the sense that, um, you know, we're getting these supine radiographs on patients who are not necessarily taking the best breath. So we're already at a disadvantage in that the heart and the mediastinum are going to artifactually, uh, you know, can artifactually look larger um, in, you know, in trauma patients just by way of the, uh, the study that's being performed. But a couple of clues to this case. So the area that's outlined in yellow is the superior mediastinum, and a good rule of thumb is that it should never be wider than one third of the width of the superior, uh, like right to left of the uh, of the chest cavity itself. So uh, this is get, this is getting a little bit uh, wider than what I would typically expect. The other thing is that, you know, we take a look at the trachea, um, and the trachea is deviated to the right, which means that there's something here in the superior mediastinum or somewhere in the vicinity of the trachea that's pushing it over to the right. And sometimes we see that, um, you know, maybe a patient has a really large goiter or something like that, so it's not like necessarily a specific sign in and of itself, but we're already seeing this prominent superior mediastinum deviation of the um, of the trachea. And the other thing is this red arrow is really, it's like pointing to nothing, but it is, I tried to put it in the place where I would expect the aortic arch to be. And I put that arrow there to just say like, you can't really see it. You know, you have patients when they have um, an artifactually enlarged cardiomediastinal fillet, you can still see the superior mediastinum. You can see the aortic arch. If they have calcs, you'll be able to see those calcs. But we really can't see anything here. It's just all kind of like all together, which means that something is silhouetting against the uh, the aortic arch. And so I'm really concerned that maybe there's a, a you know, a um, aortic injury and a mediastinal hematoma in the setting of trauma here. So this was the, uh, the correlate CT that was obtained, and we can see that there's a large traumatic pseudoaneurysm in the really classic location of the aortic isthmus. Um, so we have this outpouching here, and then we have this uh, filling defect within the outpouching as well. And the proximal aorta looks pretty normal. The distal aorta, distal to that, looks more normal. And then all of this density surrounding the contrast, this is mediastinal hematoma. And then the other thing that we didn't talk about and it wasn't a, a choice for you guys um, for the answer choices, but we have this unilateral um, opacification, like fairly diffusely and homogeneous uh, opacification of the left hemithorax. Uh, you know, we have normal lung markings and fairly clear lungs on the right. And then this is, there's this, we call it like a veiling opacity. So when you have a patient who's supine and there's pleural fluid, it's going to just kind of, if it's big enough, it's going to extend all the way from like the inferior portions of the lungs to like the lung apices. And so we don't know just based on this, if this is a pleural effusion or if this is a hemothorax. Um, but, you know, in the setting of trauma with a widened mediastinum, you know, you kind of put it all together and are concerned that this is a large layering hemothorax, which we have confirmation for, uh, for that on the CT here. So, um, yeah, this is a superior uh, mediastinal widening. Now, this is a comparison for uh, the, you know, I talked about the artifactually widened superior mediastinum. This is a patient who just, um, you know, probably has some cardiomegaly, maybe has some tortuosity of the aorta. Um, it's also a supine AP projection and, you know, maybe isn't taking, the patient isn't taking the best breath. And everything looks enlarged. The superior mediastinum looks prominent, but you can still see, oops, you can still see the aortic arch here. There's nothing that's obscuring it. There's nothing that's silhouetting against it. Like, 
you know, I can still take a look at this arch and, you know, be able to trace the whole way out. You can't really see the ascending aorta very well, um, but a lot of times you won't be able to even, uh, you know, under the best of circumstances. Um, so this patient, maybe I would say that it's prominent, but it would be more likely that it's artifactually widened. Um, any questions about uh, about this case at all? Um, and just in case anybody was uh, a little, uh, you know, missed the uh, initial QR code, if anybody needs this, again, I just wanted to put it up in case anybody else needs to get logged in. All right. So here we go. Next case. 66-year-old male patient on the trauma floor with shortness of breath. What is the most likely diagnosis? All right. We'll see how you guys did. All right, so uh, most of you guys uh, selected hemothorax, which was the correct answer. Um, I have a corollary uh, to this, and then we'll discuss uh, two cases in a row. So 80-year-old female, status to fall now with acute respiratory distress on hospital day five, which uh, best describes the left chest findings. All right, so, and 100%, this is great. All right, everybody uh, selected mucus plugging, which was the uh, correct answer. So. Let's talk about the differential for unilateral lung whiteout, which uh, is definitely something I feel like we see a lot um, on images from patients on the floor, which means that clinically you guys are, uh, are seeing this not infrequently as well. So this was the, um, the first test question that I showed you guys. So this is obviously a complete whiteout of the left hemithorax. And, you know, we have no idea what is going on, you know, like the whole thing is obscured. It's, you know, it's hard to know exactly what's going on. But the one thing that we can say for sure is that whatever is going on here is causing mass effect. We see pretty pronounced deviation of the uh, of the trachea. The right heart border is like all the way, uh, you know, all the way shifted over. We don't see really any of the rest of the heart, but just there's a lot of mass effect uh, as a result of whatever's going on here. So most often we'll see that either in the setting of a large pleural effusion or a hemothorax. Um, Every once in a while, uh, you know, we see a patient uh, like, you know, who has a chest x-ray that looks like this uh, from the ER, and maybe there's an underlying malignancy, um, you know, with an associated malignant effusion and things like that. So we don't always know for sure what's going on, but we can say that whatever it is is causing mass effect, which is causing everything to shift away. Um, if we take a look at the, uh, at the second case, this is an example of mucus plugging, and everything is shifted towards the side of abnormality. So again, we still have our pretty much completely whited out left lung. Um, and then we see that the trachea is shifted towards the side of volume loss. We have the aortic arch here. We've got some calcifications here that are also shifted over to the left chest. And then we have this left main stem bronchus with an abrupt cutoff. You know, we don't really have a great look of a lot of other um, like air-filled airways or anything like that. You know, we wonder, you know, could this patient have aspirated? Is there a mucus plug? And this is just all atelectatic lung that has, uh, you know, that has resulted uh, secondary to that. Um, and then the third, uh, the third thing to consider with the unilateral uh, whiteout of the lung is, uh, is something that's volume neutral. So pneumonia would fit the bill for this. So we take a look. Uh, this patient is intubated in the trachea and everything. It's all fairly midline. Uh, we have really nice air bronchograms. I hope this is projecting on the screens that you guys are, are looking at. Uh, so all of these airways are outlined on the other side is there elemental bacteria or, you know, what have you that is surrounding all of the airways, which makes it so that we're able to see the airways much better than we would normally be able to see in a non-whited out lung. Um, so volume neutral would be pneumonia, and then volume loss, mucus plugging without electasis, uh, and then a large effusion or hemothorax uh, might be, uh, you know, a cause for shifting away from the white outed lung. Any questions about this? 
wait, hold on, there's a message in the chat here. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Levine. Um, okay, so here is our next case. 28-year-old male, status post MVC. What is the most likely diagnosis on admission chest x-ray? All right, let's see how you guys did. Diaphragm rupture, very good. Uh, so this is an example of diaphragmatic rupture. This was a real case uh, from the true from a few years back. Um, and so let's uh, let's talk about uh, some of these imaging findings. So first, we have our extremely elevated left hemidiaphragm, which we have in the red arrows here. Uh, you know, normally we'd expect the left hemidiaphragm to be somewhere hereabouts, uh, and so markedly elevated. We also have these locules of gas that are contained. They're not like kind of free-flowing like you would expect with a case of pneumocartineum. Um, and so this, you know, some of the, you know, one of the main considerations with an elevated hemidiaphragm and loculated foci of gas would be, you know, could this be contained in bowel? So could, this potentially could be stomach. I feel like we can almost see some outline of, um, you know, maybe some haustra or, you know, some sort of bowel markings over here. So this uh, may be some of the splenic flexure that's herniated into the chest. Um, all of this mass effect that's now intrathoracic is causing mass effect. So we have deviation of the uh, of the trachea, which is shifted over to the right. And then the only thing that's kind of a little bit confusing about this case, um, and I think it's fair to wonder like whether or not this could be a hemothorax or some sort of effusion, is that we have this, uh, you know, where these asterisks are, kind of this like scalloped appearance of density up by the lung apex. And it turns out, um, I'm going to show you guys the correlate on CT, that this actually is just intra-abdominal fat that's herniated uh, way superiorly. Um, it would be kind of unusual, like, if it was a hemothorax or a pleural effusion for it to be, like, loculated this well right off the bat, um, you know, as an emission chest X-ray. But it is, you know, it does raise the possibility that it could this be some pleural fluid for sure. Um, so this unfortunately uh, was uh, was interpreted to be a large left hemothorax. Uh, so a chest tube was was actually placed in the uh, you know at, at the uh, after they saw the chest X-ray. So there's a chest X-ray uh, chest tube that's kind of going through the the uh, intra-abdominal fat, uh, kind of in between some loops of bowel here. And here we can see it on the axial image, kind of abutting this loop of uh, this loop of bowel here. Uh, but we can see that this sort of gets to the scalloped the scalloping appearance that we saw on the chest X-ray, uh, and this is just uh, intra-abdominal fat, and then we can see that there's quite a bit of mass effect on the uh, heart and the, uh, you know, and on the trachea, and everything is shifted over. Um, the defect in the diaphragm, there's maybe part of the diaphragmatic cruise is like over here, um, but yeah, I mean, this whole thing is just, uh, you know, it's just a big, uh, a big gap and a potential space for things to herniate superiorly. Um, any questions about uh, about this case? All right, so this is a 28-year-old uh, male up on the floor, status with MVC. He was post-op day two, uh, had an ORIF for a femur fracture. His initial sham scan uh, was otherwise negative, and the patient now is complaining of abdominal pain. So I'm going to show you a couple of abdominal radiographs, and I want to know what is the most critical finding that we see here. All right, let's see how you guys did. 
So, all right, answers all over the board here. Uh, the correct answer is pneumoperitoneum. Um, now, there may very well be an ileus or developing bowel obstruction. You know, we have a lot of air-filled loops of uh, bowel. Uh, you know, we've probably got some cecum here. Maybe this is some of the distal transverse colon over by the splenic flexure. But uh, the most critical finding that we have here is pneumoperitoneum. And this gets to the heart of how tricky supine radiographs are for the interpretation of free air. So we'll, uh, I have this normal abdominal radiograph for comparison um, that I'll kind of refer back and forth between that and the, uh, the images that I showed you guys. So uh, let's just take a look um, at this image here in the middle. So some of the indirect signs or subtle findings of pneumoperitoneum on supine radiographs um, you know, one of the things that we're gonna look for is Wrigler sign. So Wrigler sign is when you have gas that's both on the inside of the bowel lumen and on the outside of the bowel lumen, which makes it so that you can see the thin bowel wall very clearly. So, you know, I feel like I could take a thin tipped pencil and just draw a line all around this loop of bowel because I see it so well. You know, you compare it to, you know, some of the bowel that we, uh, that we see here on this normal radiograph and you can see that there's a wall that you can't really like you know, say like, okay, this is where the wall begins and this is where the wall ends. It's just kind of like, oh yeah, there's like gas here and then there's no gas here. And so the wall is probably about here, but it's not, it's like a little bit less of a, uh, like you just don't really see it the same way that you see this, uh, the outline of this bowel loop here. Um, the other thing that's kind of key to this case is take a look at the inferior margin of the liver. We don't typically see the uh, the liver margin quite this well. You take a look at um, at this normal case here, you know, like, okay, yeah, maybe some bowel is pushed down. Maybe I can kind of see like the inferior edge right here because there's this properitoneal fat line that serves as contrast. But here, I feel like I can see it really well and I can kind of like trace it all the way up and down. And it's kind of outlined by this weird like polygon shape of gas that's over the, um, the loop of bowel that has the regular sign. So these are two signs that you can look for. And if they're present on a supine radiograph, you, um, you might get very suspicious for free air. Uh, if we look at the other, uh, the other projection, it's kind of the same thing. You know, we have this weird like, you know, polygon of gas, and then we have like a nice regular sign over here and we see the liver margin really well. Uh, it, I think this is a really subtle finding. Um, I know that I think all radiologists really struggle with identifying free air on a supine radiograph. So if there's any way that, um, you know, patients are able to get um, abdominal radiographs in different projections, it makes it a little bit easier. Uh, but, you know, sometimes patients just aren't super mobile or the suspicion for pneumoperitoneum isn't that high. So you might not, um, you know, consider, uh, you know, consider getting those additional views. So in the, in the case of this patient, uh, they believed that there was a delayed bowel perforation, which they then, they took the patient back to the OR after they, well, first they did a CT to confirm that the presence of free air was a, was a real finding. It was there on the CT, and then they took the patient back to the OR and confirmed that there was a, what they presumed was a delayed perforation, uh, bowel perforation. Um, so just to go through some of the other findings of pneumoperitoneum, this is the classic one, right? Like uh, this is the this is the dream view that we love to have. If the patient is able to you know stand upright or you know is able to be completely erect, we get this great view of uh, you know the free air underneath the diaphragms. Uh, you see this thin outline of the bilateral hemidiaphragms, and this is great. Not necessarily practical for patients that are uh, in the true or the you know trauma patients up on the floor who are pretty sick or fairly injured. Uh, other alternative views, if we're able to get a left lateral decubitus, that's a great uh, 
kind of alternative to the upright. Uh, so with left lateral decubitus, the left side is down. The X-ray beam goes through the, uh, kind of goes tangentially to where you would expect the air to accumulate. Uh, so we see a nice meniscus of gas on the left lateral decubitus view, and it's going to accumulate antidependently, so adjacent to the liver. The text will usually um, flip the images to such a way where, you know, you, they're not like laying on their side, you know, when they end up in packs, they're kind of like look like a more standard uh, projection, but you'll see this collection of gas here adjacent to the liver. Um, then we have this cross-table lateral view, which if you haven't spent much time in PEDS, uh, you know, it's not really used, it's more of like a pediatric uh, technique that we use. Um, it can be done with adults, but uh, the way that the study is done, the x-ray beam goes through the width of the patient. So you have the x-ray beam over here, the image receptor is on the other side of the patient. So it has to kind of go through, um, you know, quite a bit of, uh, you know, of patient, uh, you know, like, even if it's a tiny patient, like, you know, a, an adult is still a lot wider than a baby is. So, um, you know, we don't always get the greatest quality study, but the um, and concepts are the same, is that the air is going to accumulate antidependently. And so in this case, we're able to see all this gas that um, accumulates, like, uh, you know, superiorly in the patient, uh, you know, when they're in this projection. Uh, we also see a really nice regular sign here in this example. You see gas on either side of these loops of bowel. And then here is uh, our AP supine view, which is the view that uh, is typically, you know, if we're not doing a deep tube view, this is what we typically get in adults on the floor. And so the x-ray beam is not going tangentially to where the gas is. It's just kind of going through it, which is why it's so hard for us to see. Um, any questions about pneumoperitoneum or the different views or, or anything like that? All right. So now we're going to uh, talk a little bit about some cross-sectional imaging here. So we have um, arterial and portal venous phase imaging from a SHAN scan status post MVC. What is the most likely diagnosis? And the uh, top image is arterial phase, the bottom image is portal venous phase. All right, let's see how you guys did. So yeah, most of you guys got it. Um, mesenteric hematoma with active hemorrhage. Um, and this is a pair of cases, so we'll come back to the explanation for that in a second. Uh, the next case is a 28-year-old female status post-MVC. And again, we have arterial and portal venous phase images shown. And what is the most likely diagnosis shown here? All right. So this one, um, all right, so this one we have a bit of a uh, mixture of answers. The correct answer is actually splenic laceration with pseudoaneurysm. So, all right, so let's talk about this pair of cases. Um, before we do that, I want to just kind of give a brief overview of why we do multiple phases in trauma. So a standard CHAM scan, uh, most of you have probably rotated uh, through the TRUE, uh, but if you haven't, uh, just to let you guys know, so we do, by standard CHAM uh, scan, we do a non-contrast head CT, a contrast-enhanced uh, CT of the head and cervical spine, and that allows us to both look for um, BCDI or any sort of, you know, vascular injury, as well as taking a look at the um, at the bones. And it essentially is a CTA of the head and neck. Then we do a CTA of the chest, uh, so in the arterial phase, and then we do a CTA of the abdomen and pelvis in the arterial phase, and then a CT abdomen and pelvis in the portal venous phase. So the arterial phase, um, you know, I think. In a lot of ways, you know, the name says it all. Like, we're doing a CT angiogram to take a look at the arteries. We're going to be able to really well evaluate the aorta, all the branch vessels, um, and all of those things. So if you're a patient you're concerned about aortic injury, CTA is the way to go. 
Um, but we do the portal genus phase because it's, um, it's really good to look at the parenchyma. And then we also need the combination of both the arterial and portal genus phase to look and see what happens to the contrast over time. So if you have um, a vessel that's injured, uh, you know, like, you know, or, or an area that's actively bleeding, we need two different time points to confirm that it is actively bleeding. So if we image, say, at like 30 seconds, and then we image again 60 seconds later, you would expect if there's an arterial bleed that the contrast is going to look different. Um, you know, you lacerate, you know, you have an injury to an artery, there's going to be like a little bit of extravasated contrast early on, and there's going to be a lot more extravasated contrast, you know, 60 seconds later. So that's one of the other reasons why we do these phases of contrast. Um, so for active hemorrhage, we'll expect to see that change. For a pseudoaneurysm, the difference between the arterial and portal venous phase is a little less obvious, where you'll see an arterial pseudoaneurysm really, really well in the arterial phase, but it follows blood pools. So by the time you get to the portal venous phase, you can't really see the pseudoaneurysm very well at all because it just kind of has blended in with whatever tissue is surrounding it. So a few things that I want to just point out in general about arterial and portal venous phase, and then we'll come back to our cases. So here um, on the top, these three images are all done in the arterial phase. And you can see we have the abdominal aorta here, um, just as an example, and it's the brightest area that's enhancing. You compare that to the portal venous phase where it's much less, much less bright. You can see that uh, you look in the liver and the portal veins are really nicely enhanced uh, compared to in the arterial phase. We see hepatic arteries, but we don't really see any, um, any portal veins because it's a really great arterial phase. Uh, we also take a look and you can see different enhancement pattern of the kidney. We have, uh, you know, really bright renal cortex and the renal medulla and the renal pelvis are a little bit darker um, and they look very distinct, whereas in the portal venous phase, everything becomes much more homogeneous. And that's true of, um, of other solid organs as well. So the portal venous phase is really our workhorse to take a look at solid organ injury. So here, if we take a look at the arterial phase, the liver looks really heterogeneous. There's areas that are dark, there's areas that are bright. The arch nemesis of all of us is what the spleen looks like on the arterial phase because it can look really um, heterogeneous, really scary. And if you have a patient who's complaining of left upper quadrant pain and they've had significant abdominal trauma, if you're looking at the arterial phase, you might look at this and say, wow, there are like splenic lacerations everywhere. Um, but because of how the spleen enhances, uh, you know, early on, you know, the, the different pulp, it sort of like, the, you know, the contrast diffuses slightly differently and creates this heterogeneous appearance of the spleen. And you take a look at the portal venous phase, and this is where you're going to be able to get a sense of really what's going on with the spleen. Everything should become way more homogeneous on the portal venous phase. Every once in a while, depending on how the patient's cardiac output is and how the scan is done, we may, like it may still look a little bit heterogeneous, but all in all, it should look significantly better than a really heterogeneous spleen on the arterial phase. Um, so I would say that not infrequently we'll get calls and questions about um, somebody who's concerned about the spleen, and uh, it's because on the arterial phase it looks, you know, it just looks really bizarre and looks terrifying if you're concerned about trauma in, you know, to the spleen. Um, so, and then the one last thing I wanted to say, and this isn't really fully applicable to the cases that I showed you, but it does come up, is that this was a patient who had um, a pretty significant uh, renal laceration, so all this uh, perirenal hematoma, and the question was, is there any involvement of the renal collecting system uh, or the ureter or anything like that, because that's going to change how the patient is managed. It's going to upstage them, uh, you know, by the, uh, you know, injury uh, severity score. 
So, uh, you know, then one of the tools that we can use is to scan the patient uh, in a more delayed phase. And this can even happen, you know, a lot of times we don't see these images before the patient is off the CT scanner. So a lot of times they've gone back to the true and we take a look and we're like, wow, like, you know, this is really close to the renal pelvis or the renal collecting system. Let's bring the patient back see what's happening to the contrast when it gets excreted. So they'll come back to the CT scanner, even if it's like an hour later, you know, they can come back and they should still be excreting contrast or contrast will have been excreted. Uh, so we'll be able to see extra luminal contrast if there is any. And so in this patient, there was an uh, injury to the renal pelvis and there was this extrapolated here. So just a few things to be aware of. Um, before we go to discuss the, the two uh, cases, the one with our questions, does anybody have any questions about just like the use of the different uh, contrast phases and things like that and how they helped us out? Okay. Um, so we'll go back to our two cases then. So this, um, so this is uh, two coronal images. This is in the arterial phase and then we have portal venous phase. And we can see how the contrast accumulates over time. So there's about 60 seconds between the arterial and portal venous phase. And here there's like a little bit of contrast. There's this hematoma that's less dense that's around it. And then 60 seconds later, there's like so much more extravasated contrast. Even the collection of contrast that we saw in the arterial phase is bigger. And then there's all these additional foci of extravasated contrast uh, within the hematoma. Uh, so this would be diagnostic of arterial hemorrhage. Uh, the pseudoaneurysm case, this is a little bit more tricky. Um, so here on the portal venous phase, we see the splenic laceration. There's, you know, some areas that look heterogeneous in the spleen, and then we're like, oh, maybe there's something going on here. This is a little bit heterogeneous here. But you don't really see anything else. You don't see anything that looks like extravasated contrast. Um, you know, it looks pretty homogeneous if you just look at the portal venous phase. If you go back, this is why the arterial phase becomes important, is that you can see multiple foci of enhancement within areas of laceration. So there's this, and then there's these three foci of contrast down here that are uh, kind of near like some, uh, maybe some subcapsular hematoma or small laceration in the periphery of the inferior aspect of the spleen. And those areas of arterial contrast just like fade away to nothing almost um, on the portal venous phase. They just blend in with the blood pool and they're really hard to see. So without the arterial phase, image, you know, we would be undergrading the severity of the splenic laceration. Like as soon as we have a pseudoaneurysm that bumps the patient up to a grade four and, uh, you know, maybe just seeing these areas of splenic laceration, you know, this may be, uh, may be a grade three. And so this could potentially change how you guys are going to, uh, going to manage these injuries. Now, the other thing I wanted to say about this is um, a lot of times we get patients that are transferred from outside hospitals, and the outside hospitals may not have the same, uh, like they may not have um, optimized imaging studies specifically for trauma, meaning that they'll just do a portal venous phase and they won't necessarily do the arterial phase. So if we were to get this image on a disc and, you know, you guys ask for an overread, you know, we'll interpret the study and, you know, the best that we could say is that there's no, you know, we don't see any signs of definite arterial injury. But we know that we're probably, like, we have the potential to be missing uh, arterial injury without doing the arterial phase. And so I think in that setting, it's not unreasonable for you guys to, um, you know, to repeat the study, you could do a CTA, um, you know, CTA abdomen pelvis, and we would do it both in the arterial and portal venous phase to make sure that there's definitely no arterial injury. Now, if we have a study that's like stone cold, 100% normal, and you guys aren't too clinically concerned about it, there may not be a need to repeat the study. But if you have somebody who has injuries that we're seeing on the portal venous phase, it may be worth you know, having the patient rescanned with both phases of contrast to make sure that there's no vascular injury that would need to be managed. 
Um, and it's always worth, like, you guys can totally call over to the reading room and you can see, you know, what type of study the patient came over with because it really is just very facility dependent. Maybe they've done it, maybe they haven't done the dual phase uh, scanning. Um, any questions about this? All right, so here's your next case. 51-year-old female, status post MVC. What is the most concerning topology shown here? All right, let's see how you guys did. All right, so most of you guys got it. This is an example of devascularized bowel. And let's uh, let's talk about this. Actually, a video of scrolling through the imaging. Um, which I think we'll skip for now, just on the, uh, the basis of time. But what we're looking at here is, um, so there's a, there's a couple of findings here. We, if we take a look at these loops of small bowel in the left mid to upper abdomen, these are pretty normal loops of small bowel. We have like normal mucosal enhancement, and uh, you know we can see a little bit of fluid in the bowel, whatever, all of this looks pretty normal. And then we take a look at these loops of bowel that are down in the pelvis, and they are, they have fluid in them, but we don't see any mucosal enhancement. So if you just look at like this loop of bowel here and compare it to the loop of bowel just below it, there's no enhancement along the mucosa at all of any of these more inferiorly located loops of small bowel. And so this is highly concerning for devascularized bowel. And then you put this in addition to, you know, you take a look, there's a small mesenteric hematoma here. There's probably another mesenteric hematoma here. And this patient probably has multiple bucket handle tears that have resulted in the devascularized bowel. And in fact, when they, uh, when they did take this patient uh, to the OR, there was, you know, extensive uh, devascularized bowel that had to be resected. Um, any questions about that? All right. So now we're going to switch gears. We've kind of spent a lot of time talking about chest, abdomen, pelvis stuff, um, but a lot of patients come into the true and or, or once they're admitted, uh, they have neurologic, uh, either neurotrauma or uh, complications that have resulted, uh, you know, from their injuries. So the last few cases are all neuro-based, so we'll go through some of those here. So which sequences, which are shown here, are the most sensitive to look for an acute infarct? All right, let's see. So, yeah, so the most sensitive sequences that we're going to use to look for an acute infarct are the DWI and the ABC. Um, so we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, so basically, DWI stands for diffusion-weighted imaging. The ABC is like basically a mathematical correlate uh, that we use to uh, see if there's true restricted diffusion. Now, when we talk about restricted diffusion, we're really looking at things at the cellular level. So we're looking at cytotoxic edema that results from... Um, decreased, so you have decreased blood flow to uh, to the neurons, and you have um, kind of a breakdown of the sodium-potassium ATPase pump. So you don't have the oxygen that's getting there, so you're losing the normal diffusivity of water that would normally occur that's used, like, when you're powering the sodium-potassium pump. So this is actually, like, a an imaging representation of cytotoxic edema. And the reason that you have to look at these two sequences together is that when you have true restricted diffusion, so true uh, cytotoxic edema, you have to look at the ADC map, which you'll see is dark. So this is a patient who has a large right MCA territory infarct, which is going to be bright on the DWI sequence. And in order to know for sure that it's true restricted diffusion, uh, true ischemic uh, you know, brain parenchyma, it has to be dark 
on this ADC map. And um, if it's not, then it's, you know, it either could be artifactual or it could be related to, um, you know, maybe an infarct that it has started to evolve. It's no longer in the acute phase, maybe more subacute, but it's not true restricted diffusion. So I know that you guys, um, you know, you're dealing with a lot of patients who have, uh, you know, maybe they've, you're worried about an infarct, the sequela of BCDI, or maybe they've just had really bad traumatic brain injury and you're worried that they've developed an infarct. Um, these would be the two go-to sequences and they're labeled in packs. Like, so you don't necessarily have to know all the imaging features, uh, you know, for how you would recognize which sequences with which, but if you can just remember that the DWI and the ADC maps um, are the two that you would go to, to, to look for. And, um, you know, if you, if you see something bright on DWI, you look for it on ABC. And if they, uh, you know, are sort of matching the same territory, then you'd be concerned for acute infarct. Um, more often, though, you guys are going to be seeing infarcts on CT uh, before they would necessarily go to MRI. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about some of those CT findings that you would expect. So the, the most basic finding at its core would be loss of gray-white differentiation, which is the CT representation of um, cytotoxic edema. So if we take a look at normal brain, we'll just take a look at this um, this image that's kind of the second one over. You can see this bright gray matter cortex, and uh, you can take a line and just kind of draw it, and it's, it looks brighter than the white matter that's just deep to it. And when you have an infarct, you lose that gray-white differentiation, and it just kind of turns into like this homogeneous or relatively homogeneous gray appearance. So we see this area of infarct here involving ACA and MCA territories here, where there's lots of gray-white differentiation, there's a little bit of edema. Um, you can see we don't really like have many sulci that we can see compared to like other parts of the brain. And so this is what we're looking for. So if we see infarct, we're looking for this loss of gray-white differentiation. Um, just some other examples, this is insular ribbon sign, which is a sign of left MCA uh, infarct, um, where you lose the gray-white differentiation in the insula here. We have a nice cortical gray ribbon, which is nice and bright here. And then you see the white matter that's just deep to it. And then you take a look on the left and everything is just like homogeneously gray. And we have a little bit of sulcal effacement. There's a little bit of edema. And this is cytotoxic edema in the insular, like in the insular region. Um, blurred basal ganglia sign is something else that we can look at. The basal ganglia are deep gray nuclei. So there should be bright, just like the cortex. And here's normal. Uh, the normal caudate, the normal lentiform nuclei here, they're bright. And then we have intervening white matter that goes in between them. You take a look at the abnormal side, and we lose that brightness in the basal ganglia. So the caudate is dark for the most part. There's like maybe a little bit of preserved uh, gray matter there. But it's dark here, and then over here, it's also decreased in attenuation. And so, again, loss of gray-white differentiation is the overarching theme. Now, the other thing that we can look for, and I'm sure you guys are all familiar with it is the hyperdense vessel sign. So this is when we're actually seeing like a thrombus in a vessel. So this is an example of a hyperdense MCA, middle cerebral artery, and normally the vessel should be relatively dark, but then you get to about here and there's this bright area and that is acute thrombus in the MCA. And we can have hyperdense vessels pretty much in any vessel, uh, you know, basilar, ACA, whatever, doesn't really matter. Um, if there's thrombus in there and it's like relatively recent thrombus, it, it can be bright. Um, but those are all the things that we're that we're looking for. Um, and so if you can just remember loss of gray-white differentiation and some of the uh, like the associated mass effects, sulcal effacement, uh, those are uh, those would be secondary signs that we would look for. Um, okay, so our next neuro case, and uh, let's see what abnormality, if any, 
is shown here. All right, let's see. All right, so most of you guys got it. I'm impressed. The, uh, this is a subacute subdural hemorrhage along the right, and these can be really subtle, uh, difficult to see. So let's talk about this. So subdural hemorrhage, uh, I'm sure you guys are all very familiar, um, you know, with the meningeal layers, and the subdural hemorrhage is uh, blood products that accumulate between the dura and the arachnoid. It's crescentic, like in this example. Uh, it can cross sutures, uh, but it won't cross midline, and it's limited by the falks. And uh, it's usually a, you know, it's a venous hemorrhage. And so if we talk about how hemorrhage evolves over time, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to talk about that in a little bit more detail soon. But this is a head CT from the same patient uh, that the question was from uh, that was obtained three weeks prior. And so here we can see this crescentic collection along the right cerebral convexity. And over time, it becomes uh, darker in attenuation, kind of almost blends in with the brain parenchyma. Um, and makes it uh, that much more difficult to, uh, to see. Uh, if we contrast the subdural hemorrhage with epidural hematoma, epidural hematoma is this uh, lentiform shape, it kind of looks like a lemon, and it's between the dura and the calvarium. It can cross midline and typically won't cross sutures. Uh, it's frequently associated with calvarial fractures, uh, and it's caused 90 to 95% of the time due to injury of, uh, of arterial origin, most often the middle meningeal artery. If you take a look at the calvarium, when it gets fractured, the middle meningeal artery is in very close proximity uh, to the inner table of the calvarium, and so it can get injured um, and resulting in uh, epidural hematoma. Now, that leaves the 5 to 10% of epidural hematomas that are venous, uh, so it's just something to, to be aware of. They have different management uh, protocols and, uh, and things like that that neurosurgery, uh, you know, will you know, will handle uh, differently compared to the arterial. Uh, and just to compare and contrast all the most common types of hemorrhage that you guys are going to see, so subdural hemorrhage, crescentic, epidural hematomas, lentiform. We have uh, some subarachnoid hemorrhage, which classically they show, like, you know, kind of that star-shaped uh, appearance of hemorrhage down at the basal cisterns, but really it can be hemorrhage in any sulcus, uh, so, you know, have this curvilinear appearance. And then parenchymal contusions, which we'll often see, like, a um, adjacent to the calvarium, adjacent to roughened edges of the calvarium, often we'll see it in the anterior-inferior frontal lobes or adjacent to the petrous apex here. Um, so if we just talk about uh, the appearance of blood for a couple of minutes on CT. So you guys are probably much closer to and much more familiar to this whole, um, you know, what happens, uh, you know, as part of like the coagulation and uh, clotting cascade. But, you know, kind of at its basic level, the very first thing that's going to happen when you have um, hemorrhage is that you have a plate, uh, like the platelets will come and uh, form a polymer with fibrin. And that's the earliest thing that's going to happen. And some researcher somewhere was like, hey, I'm going to take these platelets and fibrin, I'm going to put them in a CT scanner, and I'm going to see what the household units are. So the household units of this uh, this combination is actually very low. Simple water is zero. Normal acute blood products is like around 60 to 80, you know, can go up to 100. So 20 is very low. And so it's going to be fairly dark. Um, and so this manifests as uh, a swirl sign. So I don't know if any of you guys have heard this term before, but basically if you have a patient who has active hemorrhage, like uh, a hematoma that is actively bleeding, has ongoing bleeding, uh, or maybe a patient who's on anticoagulation, and so they're delayed with their ability to form a clot. You get this heterogeneous appearance of a hematoma, and it's not the same type of, like, acute on chronic type bleed where you'll see, like, a meniscus. It's, like, low density within a hematoma, and it's kind of just, like, in the middle of it. 
And we actually, this was a patient who had a shan skin, so we had the benefit of having essentially a CTA. Um, so we saw this, we're like, oh, I wonder if this patient is actively bleeding. And as it turns out, there was active hemorrhage that we could prove for sure was coming from this vessel here within the hematoma. So this is a, you know, this is, it's a pretty reliable sign if you, or, you know, it's a pretty uh, sign that you get pretty suspicious of if you see it. And if you happen to have a CTA, you can prove it. Um, not necessarily worth doing a CTA necessarily to prove it if you weren't going to already do one. Um, you know, maybe it would be somebody that you'd just get short-term follow-up, like maybe in an hour or two instead of waiting like four to six hours to get your head CT follow-up on um, if we saw something like this. So um, then after you have your platelet fibrin polymer, um, you know, all the red blood cells get recruited and the hemoglobin comes with that. And with all of that, the Hounsfield units start to increase. And we'll usually increase, uh, yeah, like I said, to 60 to 100 household units during the first 72 hours. And that's the acute blood that we're, you know, used to seeing. It's nice and bright, um, you know, this epidural hematoma here and some subdural hemorrhage along the falks. And this is, uh, this is kind of classic. And I should know, or should let you guys know also that it is, a, the degree of household units is dependent on the patient's uh, hematocrit level. So if there's somebody who's really anemic, the acute blood products may not be as bright as somebody who is not anemic. Um, then after you get to the uh, like more subacute phase, uh, the blood products start to break down and it's pretty reliable, usually about one and a half household units per day. Uh, and so, the hematoma will become isoattenuating to parenchyma, usually at one to four weeks, and then eventually isoattenuating to CSF by two months. So we have this subacute subdural hemorrhage here along the right cerebral convexity, and then several months later, you can't really distinguish it at all from the CSF that's in the ventricles. So by the time we get to the chronic phase, we don't know if it's just CSF like a hygroma or if it's a chronic subdural hematoma if we don't have comparison imaging. And at that point, it may not matter clinically, um, you know, but if, if it needed to be differentiated, you could always do an MRI and see if there was presence of any blood products. Uh, that would be the best way to tell. And I know we're just at 2 o'clock. This is my last case. Um, here we go. So here is... Uh, all right, 30, 30 year old male found down with epidural hematoma. What additional finding shown here is most critical? All right, let's see how you guys did. All right, so most of you guys got it transcentral herniation, um, hyperdense vessel sign, which is a totally reasonable thing to, uh, to wonder if it's there. Uh, we have, uh, you know, all this vasculature looks, looks pretty dense. Subarachnoid hemorrhage is also a, a really good thought. So um, this is transcentral herniation, and uh, I wanted to just review some of the herniation patterns real quick. So, uh, but before I do, I want to just talk about, so the subarachnoid hemorrhage, uh, there's something called pseudo-subarachnoid hemorrhage. So when patients have diffuse cerebral edema, the vessels look artifactually brighter than they should, uh, which is why some of the vessels look a little bit more dense, which may have tricked you guys, some of you guys into the hyperdense vessel sign. Um, the reason they look dense is not only just because everything around it is much darker, but also because the blood flow is really sluggish. And so, you know, you kind of get hemoconcentrated in the vessels, which can artifactually increase the density. Um, so it could create either a false hyperdense vessel sign or uh, this pseudo-subarachnoid hemorrhage. Um, so we'll talk about some of these herniation patterns. So our patient had a transcentorial herniation, and there's a few different things that sort of fall under the category of transcentorial herniation. Broadly, there's the descending transcentorial herniation, which is you have cerebral 
you know, supertentorial brain material uh, traveling inferiorly. The other is ascending transcentorial herniation, which is when the cerebellum travels upwards. So the first question is, like, where is it traveling? So the tentorium is shown here, um, outlined by the, um, by the arrowheads here. And the brain parenchyma, whether it's the cerebrum or the cerebellum, is going to be traveling through the incisura, which is basically like a potential space that's normally filled with, like, CSF, and there's, like, a little bit of room for, you know, just normal, uh, normal CSF and uh, just room to to go to grow basically um but instead the um when you have transcentral herniation brain material is going through the incisura and kind of clogging up that space so the um you know one of the more common things that you guys will uh, will see and i know it probably you guys talk about this all the time is uncle herniation so the uncus is the medial portion of the temporal lobe and you know the classic imaging find or the classic findings that you guys are going to see you know blown pupil or altered mental status uh, things like that um and what i think it's really interesting to kind of show graphically and you know on imaging why these things happen so when you have the uncus from the uh, temporal lobe, it travels medially into the supercellar cistern here, which is this uh, space is just kind of filled with uh, there's vessels and there's just CSF here. Uh, but one of the other structures that falls in this location is cranial nerve three. It kind of comes out through the center of the pons, travels here, um, you know, until eventually it makes its way out to the to the uh, to the eye. And so when you have mass effect of the temporal lobe that herniates medially, it causes mass effect on cranial nerve three, and then you can get, you know, what you guys see is the blown pupil. It also causes mass effect on the posterior cerebral artery, which travels around the pons and can result in posterior cerebral artery infarct. It also causes mass effect on the cerebral aqueduct here, which can result in upstream hydrocephalus and also compresses the midbrain and the cerebral peduncle, which can cause ischemia or infarct in those locations. So um, in our patient, the potential space here that theoretically should be filled with CSF is just filled with brain parenchyma. And, uh, you know, most of it is just super tentorial brain material that is coming down, but it's really hard to tell basically like there's just so much brain parenchyma here filling the space and you don't see any CSF at all. Um, if we take a look at some of the axial images, I just wanted to put side by side like abnormal versus uh, normal. So here on the normal side, we can see part of the basilar artery here and we have CSF around the pons. And here we're kind of approximately at the same level. We have the pons and we have no CSF. And even though this is not a contrast-enhanced study, the, you can imagine that the basilar artery is kind of right up in here, and it's getting compressed by the um, edematous brain parenchyma. And if we take a look here a little bit higher, here's our normal supercellular cistern, which should normally have CSF, and this is a contrast-enhanced study on the normal side, so we can see all these uh, different arteries. And we don't see any CSF, which means in turn that probably all of these vessels are completely compressed. And maybe they haven't gotten to the point where they have uh, infarcted, but they're definitely, these patients are at risk. Um, then just real quick, uh, you know, we have subthalcine herniation, which is kind of the classic uh, right to left or left to right midline shift. And one of the complications that we worry about here is uh, the anterior cerebral arteries, which hang out right by the falks. Uh, can get compressed by the brain parenchyma, and you can also get asymmetric enlargement of one of the ventricles and asymmetric compression of the other ventricle, and so you have poor flow of CSF and then the potential for ACA territory infarcts. 
And so this would kind of be a classic appearance of what you'd see, um, you know, for subthalus herniation. Uh, the last, and we'll just talk real briefly about this, is the cerebellar tonsillar herniation. Um, so we take a look at a sagittal image in profile here. These cerebellar tonsils are normally supposed to end above the foramen magnum, which is here. Um, but as you have swelling of the brain or edema in the cerebellum, everything kind of swells out, causes mass effect on the brainstem, which compresses this uh, basilar artery here, which can predispose patients to getting basilar, uh, basilar artery infarcts, as well as hydrocephalus, because we're blocking off the, uh, the flow of CSF. Um, so if we come back to our patient here, uh, this patient basically has everything. There's probably, there is a degree of subthalcine herniation here. We obviously have our transcentorial herniation here. And um, I don't show it, but the patient did have a mild degree of cerebellar tonsillar herniation. And so this patient did eventually get uh, decompressed, uh, had a uh, decompressed hemicraniectomy, but it was already too late for this patient. Uh, infarcts, by the time they had gone for surgery, infarcts had already started to evolve, and we have ACA infarcts bilaterally, MCA and PCA territory infarcts that resulted as a complication of his uh, very large epidural hematoma and his herniation. So any questions, uh, any questions about that or anything that we have talked about? I just put down here some take-home points um, that you guys can read, but most importantly, if you have any questions uh, about any imaging findings that you're concerned about or a patient who you're concerned about who's had imaging, please call down to radiology. We are so happy to help you and uh, review any scans or, you know, go over anything that you might have questions about. And, uh, yeah, thank you guys all for your time and your attention. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, and thanks for finishing, and thank you guys for kind of sticking in there uh, for an extra 10 minutes. That was awesome. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. All right, Dr. Smith, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for uh, for inviting me, and uh, thank you. <laughs>